Hi, this is Justin Hibbard, and you're listening to Why Catholic, my podcast about the what and why of Catholicism. While typically I talk about specific topics related to Catholicism, I want to be sure to sprinkle in episodes once a month with Catholics who are living out their faith in theology. G.K. Chesterton said, let your faith be less of a theory and more of a love affair. And so today, I'm excited to share this interview with Rhonda Franklin Ortiz. Rhonda is an award-winning novelist, nonfiction writer, and founding editor of Chrism Press. In Pieces, the first novel of her Molly Chase series, was the recipient of two awards, including the competitive ACFW Genesis Contest. Rhonda's articles on spirituality, family life, and arts and culture have been published by a variety of popular media outlets, including Integrated Catholic Life, CatholicMom.com, Aletia, and Catholic World Report. She was a contributor to the Catholic Mom's Prayer Companion, a book of daily reflections, and has served as both art director and webmaster for the literary magazine Dappled Things. Rhonda is a member of the Catholic Writers Guild, American Christian Fiction Writers, Oregon Christian Writers, and the Historical Novel Society. She is also a fully professed lay member of the Order of Preachers, the Dominicans. A native Oregonian, Rhonda attended St. John's College in my hometown, historic Annapolis, Maryland, and now lives in Michigan with her husband and children. Here's my interview with Mrs. Rhonda Ortiz. Rhonda, it's so good to have you here. Thank you so much for joining me for Why Catholic. Just a pleasure to see you again. Thank you, Justin. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. You know, I was thinking about this and I was thinking, I think the first time that I met you, it was at a party with you and your husband. And, and I think we were just passing by and, and I mentioned, oh, I'm the worship pastor at New Hope Chapel um, in Annapolis, Maryland. And you mm-hmm. said, oh, you know, we attended there when we were in college at St. John's College um, before our conversion. And I, I stopped and I was like, uh, what did you convert to? And you said Catholicism. And, I, and, it, and it took me off guard because this, this was the first time I'd ever heard of a Protestant becoming Catholic. And mm-hmm. so I, 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 um, it, it threw me off guard. And, and obviously now um, I've heard many, many conversion stories, but yours was the first. Tell me a little bit about your faith background in that decision to become Catholic. That sounds great. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, um, I come from a kind of motley background, just in terms of family of origin. Um, my dad's side is all Church of Christ. My mom's is nominally Presbyterian, but for the most part, not practicing. And um, and when I was growing up, for, for most of you know my young years, we did not go to church. And then um, eventually um, uh, joined the... Um, um, First Church of God at Albany, Oregon, uh, which is part of the Churches of God out of Anderson, Indiana. So that's that's basically, you know, my 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 growing up years. And then um, we ended up. I went to St. John's in Annapolis, Maryland, and um, and that was a a real revolution, a revolutionary time for me. Um, I think for in terms of faith, um, I didn't have a place automatically to go. And I didn't know what to do. And of course, being so far from home and so out of the routines and um, unfortunately falling in with (laughs) a bunch of not really great friends, um, you know, there was definitely a falling away for a long time. And and And, what would you say, how would you identify yourself at this time? Would you say, oh, I'm an evangelical Christian or how would you identify yourself? I think probably I would just, I would have just said, I'm a Christian. Okay. You know, um, but I do remember, um, you know, feeling frustrated because, you know, when you don't have a car in college and you don't, you know, what's walkable is maybe not what you would want and you're dependent on other people. And so, you know, there's this kind of constant church hopping or like 
trying to find a group of friends who are going to the same place as you. And there's a lot of just those sort of practical concerns. And eventually you just go, I <laughs> just give up, <laughs> you know, um, I don't need it. And so, I mean, it's, it's, it wasn't even some sort of uh, this, this kind of falling away was twofold. And so, but the second, you know, the first part is just sin, bad friends, bad boyfriend, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We went through a prodigal daughter stage there. But part of that really was just very practical. You know, it's it's hard to get to church. You give up, you shrug, you know? And um, and so that is what happened. Um, and then uh, my sophomore year of school, um, I had a I had a good girlfriend who asked me to be her accountability partner. And now at this time, I was again, very deep in uh, the, the prodigal daughter stage of my life. And I did not want accountability, but I'm also a people pleaser. And I did not want to say no. Sure. And this is a grace because I said yes. And um, for, you know, for several months we would meet and I would have absolutely, I would have this sense of like, I'm hiding things. I know I'm hiding things. I know I'm hiding things that I should not be hiding. You know, I should be putting out in the open and asking God's forgiveness. And that just, that just ate at me. And, and then finally, um, one morning, uh, Sunday morning, I woke up late. I had missed the van to go to, you know, with the other Christians on campus to go find a church. And, but I, I had this deep desire to go to church that morning. And so I walk into the dining hall. It was noon, you know, or, you know, 1130. And I see a, I see a friend, a guy friend, and I knew he was Catholic and I knew he was going to mass at 1230 because in Annapolis, Maryland, they have mass all day, you know, so you, you know, it's, so there's, there's just so many, there's it's such a big parish. They have, they have mass all day. And so I knew he was going at 1230 and I said, can I go with you? And he said, sure. You know, so he and I and another another uh, friend walked down there to the parish, and I I um, I went to my very first mass. I'd never been inside a Catholic church, never been to mass. This is my very first time, and um, I sat down with them. I was, you know, I was, of course, very impressed. And Annapolis has a very beautiful church, and so I was, you know, a couple overawed by how how beautiful it was. And I sat was this, down. Was this St. Mary's Church? Yeah, St. Mary's, Mary's Annapolis. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I sat down and uh, we mass began and I just did what my friends did. And um, and then sometime, somewhere in the middle of the homily, I had, um, I mean, in Protestant parlance, we just say come to Jesus moment. Uh, but I had one of those very rare and very um, intimate experiences of God where I had basically interlocution. And it had nothing to do with the homily, by the way. I wasn't really paying attention to that. Um, <laughs> um, and I had, a, I had basically, I knew it was God the Father, because I could, I could, I had an overwhelming sense of fatherly love, hmm. and I also had a reprimand at the same time. It was, co- it was concurrent, and it was, what are you doing with your life? Anyway, and so I start I start bawling my eyes out. And of course, these are dude friends. And so they're just looking at me like, what do I do? 
What are you doing? We don't do this here. <laughs> don't do this. <laughs> you know what I mean? This um, is not your Pentecostal church. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. We're not, we're not, we don't have our hands up in the air like that. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm bawling my eyes out. When I look back retrospectively, in retrospect, I realized this is the very first time I was in the presence of the Eucharist. And I wasn't, you know, I'm a bab, I was a baptized Christian, you know, um, I was a Christian who was caught between a life of sin and a life of being held accountable or like trying to like the knowledge I hadn't abandoned my faith. I was living a half faith or half faith life in the middle of also living and doing things anyway. So, you know, who leave church? I mean, I really, the, the, the poor men that I was with, they just didn't know what to do with me. And I went immediately, I broke up, a, you know, broke up with a boyfriend and, and who was uh, shocked to say the least, you know, um, and, and then, uh, and that went from there. Um, and it took a while to realize, because I think in my head, I was like, oh, well, it just happened to be at the Catholic church that this is where God revealed himself to me. It took a while to get to the place where I was like, maybe there's something more to the location mm. of my conversion. And um, so it took a while to get there. Um, I was really fortunate. Um, I took a year off from school. I went home, I recovered, and then I came back and I rejoined um, the class I rejoined with. It happened to be a really fantastic class. It's the one we, our mutual friends are all in, mm. we were all in that, that okay. um, class at St. John's. And so, uh, and I made Catholic friends as well. And so, yeah, so, I mean, in St. John's being kind of a nerdy, great books, discussion-based place, you know, we're all nerdy. So we like to talk about things and that's where, uh, that's where things happened, you know, and, and eventually um, I became Catholic in my senior year of college. I met my husband when I was in the middle of the RCIA program. He was a graduate student in his first year grad school and I was a senior. So, um and and he's he's a he's a revert he's he's a cradle catholic but he um he has his own story which you can watch on the journey home <laughs> oh, is it really? yeah if you go to he was on the journey home he was on the journey home yeah okay. uh so you know listeners out here can you know if you want to google jared ortiz you can you can find him yeah that's great <laughs> i'm a huge fan of the the coming home network and um i've gotten to know a couple of people uh that lead that uh d- you know, do the, um, on the journey podcast and yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's been, it's been so, super helpful for me. So I, I will definitely look that up. I'm yeah. So yeah. Yeah, you should. Yeah. He's yeah. So he has his own story and, and we just happened to converge, you know, into me right in the middle of my conversion process. And mm-hmm. so actually, and, and uh, amusingly enough, Jared, and if you, if you know him well, you know, people out there, if you were to know him well, listeners, uh, this is just so in keeping. So his joke was that he didn't want to marry a pro- or propose to a Protestant, <laughs> but really he was just trying to give me space to like finish the process on my own without the added pressure of, and now we're engaged. So you really do need to become Catholic. <laughs> um, so anyway, so he, um, the weekend of Easter vigil happened to be my birthday. And so he, on my birthday, he gave me a gift. And I was expecting a ring. I really was, you know, but it wasn't a ring. And I was like, oh, <laughs> you know, 
And then the next day on Holy, so that was the Good Friday, Holy Saturday, he gave me a confirmation gift, not a ring. And then, and then I had my confirmation, you know, we had whole, we had Easter vigil confirmed first communion. And then after that, he proposed, he waited 15 minutes after my becoming Catholic. And he finally proposed. I mean, he was like, you know, antsy for this. <laughs> I know. So, so yeah, he didn't wait very long, but he did wait. Um, and for that, I, but anyway, it's, it's a pretty funny, you know, he, he, he didn't wait very long. <laughs> I got my sacraments and a promise of another one all in one night. It was a big night. He <laughs> <laughs> just dove right in, right? Right. Oh, that's, yeah. That's awesome. Um, now, um, how was that telling your family back home? Hey, I'm Catholic or I'm becoming Catholic. What, what, what was that like? So um, that was interesting. My dad. So my dad has a Church of Christ background. Um, he has very conflicted feelings about having been raised Church of Christ. Um, I think in, par- in, in part, probably because dad and like that entire side of the family has a very artistic sensibility. And so, um, you know, so for example, my grandmother's a musician, you know, and if you know Church of Christ, no musical instruments, right? right. You know, it's only vocal. Um, and so things like that, you know, where it's like, there wasn't a very clear place you know, and my, my grandmother was a wonderful musician, um, and things like that. So I think my dad has those kind of artistic sensibilities and didn't have a place. And when I told him I was becoming Catholic, he was like, oh, they have beautiful churches, you know? So like for him, it was aesthetic was Mm. the aesthetic side of it was like, oh, this is okay. My mom had a harder time. Um, I think in part because, um, and it, it finally came out why that was. Um, and, it was, she had felt as though she had done something wrong. Mm. Um, and I think wrong by not necessarily that I was being led astray, but that, that she didn't do enough to raise me in the faith. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like you took me to church. Like that's the first and foremost thing. Like any parent can do is just simply get their kids there Mm. and go themselves. Um, and, I'm like, and, and I have no ill will to the, the, the church I was raised in at all. I'm not one of those bitter con converts where it was like, oh, the rest of, you know, (laughs) you know, like I was told, I was told when I converted, like bring the best of what you have with you. And this is this, these wonderful people taught me about Jesus and they baptized me, you know, and I can't, I can't be any more grateful to them. So I, you know, and I just like, you know, looked at my mom, like. I am like, I'm grateful to her. And I think she, that helped, that helped because there was, you know, whenever you're dealing with, you know, with parents and conversion and those kind of changes, it's oftentimes not theological. There's something else kind of, um, when there's a conflict over that, there's something else um, governing that. And I think usually it's because when children pick a different way than their parents, you know, the parents don't know what to do with that, you know, because you feel like, wait a second, you know, I, I, I did that. And that's actually something, um, we haven't mentioned this quite yet, but, um, I'm a novelist. And it's actually something that I've dealt with in my fiction as well. Um, just in terms of just portraying conversion, um, and having a parent child viewpoints on the same thing on the matter. And so, 
anyway, we, we don't have to get into that. But yeah, my, my family, um, they came around and my, and two years later, my sister converted. Oh, wow. So, um, and so we, you know, and I'm one of three. So two out of the three of us are Catholic. Um, my sister and I both have six children. Um, and, and so my parents go to a lot of baptisms and first communions <laughs> and, and they're getting used to like, you know, all of these kinds of celebrations and things like that because they have grandchildren. And of course, grandchildren are make all the difference in the world. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, now, in addition to becoming Catholic, you're a lay Dominican. Tell me a little bit about that. Why, why did you choose the Dominican order and what, it, what does it mean to be a lay Dominican? Um, that is a really great question. So um, the Dominicans are the, the, or the order of preachers is a, um, is an order within the church. It's founded by St. Dominic or it was founded by St. Dominic uh, in the 13th century. And it was a response to a heresy, Albigensianism, the Albigensians. Uh, and basically um, the need for um, preaching, preachers in the church. At the time, only bishops preached. And so uh, for anybody not a bishop to preach required a special dispensation from the Pope. And, um, and that's what the, the order of preachers um, came about. The way it, it, it has worked, so you have the friars, you have the sisters, um, so you have the friars, the nuns, and then there are religious sisters now, um, and then there's the laity, and the laity have been a part of the, um, the understanding of the order since, a very, since very early on, um, um, that, the, that the laity could be formally incorporated into the order in a lay state. Um, so traditionally, this is called a third order. Uh, the Franciscans have the same deal. Um, you know, so the laity can be incorporated into some of the religious orders. I think the Carmelites have a have a third order. Um, there are various uh, orders within the church who have laity incorporated formally. Um, so what attracted me to the Dominicans, I think first and foremost, is that they have a devotion to the word, Christ as the word. And because I'm a writer, because um, I'm a talker here, hi, <laughs> the um, uh, that I have a devotion to the word as well. You know, that the idea of Christ as the word as a charism makes sense to me, both in my prayer life and in my apostolate. And uh, I happen to like St. Dominic. Uh, that was my first, that was my first litmus test. You know, when I was discerning the order, I thought, I'm going to read a biography of St. Dominic. I need to find out if I actually like him, which matters uh, when you're looking into third orders because sometimes personalities don't really mesh, you know, even if somebody's holy, um, I can think of a personality of a saint that I don't really particularly care for in terms of personality would be St. Jose Maria Escriva. You know, I just, he just rubs me the wrong way. Um, that's not to say that he's not holy and not a saint. He was, but people are people. And so, you know, and so, um, that was my, that was my kind of my first litmus test. Um, I was familiar with the Dominicans, um, for many years, we have Dominican friends, I think actually mutual friends yep. who are Dominican. At, yeah. Um, Father Ezra, I was at his ordination yeah. and, and with you and, um, and then he gave us an amazing tour of the Basilica of San Clemente in in Rome when we went oh. to visit. Some you are ago. so fortunate. Oh, that's yeah. wonderful. That's yeah. wonderful. Uh, in fact, I when I look back on these nuggets of my conversion, 
and when I and I think about these conversations that I had in the past, like with you passing in a party or there at San Clemente, and I and I think these little these little nuggets, these little moments were little breadcrumbs along the journey, you know. So mm-hmm. yeah, super grateful to have that experience. Yeah. Anyways, keep keep going. Oh yeah, no, and actually, I mean, speaking of Father Ezra Sullivan, I you know I will um, put a nice shout out for him. I mean, he was also his friendship was also very instrumental in my conversion and. Um, he and my husband are actually correspond, um, on a fairly regular basis, um, which is, which is really lovely. So we do get updates every so often, uh, even though he is overseas and very busy. Um, we saw him last summer. He was in town and oh, Notre Dame, um, and I'm, I'm about an hour and a half North. So we did get to see him, uh, briefly. Um, but in any case, yeah. So I've known, I've known Dominicans, but I didn't have a particular, um, affinity or didn't feel a particular affinity mostly i think because i know all the dominicans i know are friars they're men and then i met sisters and all of a sudden the dominican the dominican charism in its feminine form is way more it's it's more affective so um and i not effective but affective it's it has a, a certain kind of vibrancy um that's particular to women hmm. and um it, it, like as a Dominican, I wish I could explain that a little bit better, but it makes more sense when you're experiencing it. Um, and so it made sense. It clicked, you know, and I needed, I think I needed to see it as from women. And so at that point I was like, I'm going to look into this. And so that's, that's what, that's what ended up happening. And so what are like, what are the, when you, when you took your vow, um, what does that mean for you? Like what, how do you live out this um, Dominican charism? That's, yeah, that's a great question. So the, um, the pillars there's Dominican in Dominican life, they're what are called four pillars. So prayer, study, community life and apostolate, um, or your, your apostolic, your, your preaching in some form capacity. Um, so for me, and so in the lay state, of course, this is lived out in the home, but it's also lived out in the fraternal life that I, I meet with once a month with my local fraternity, my local Dominican fraternity. Um, and we meet, we pray together. We, um, usually somebody preaches or we have something that we're studying together and, um, um, and then we share in an apostolate together. And, and so that's lovely, you know, we, you know, having a touching base there. Um, uh, so that's, that's a, like more formally within the order. And then of course there's the, you know, interim emails and, you know, um, my group has recently started getting together on Zoom, an additional, just, just to hang out, just to talk, you know, um, uh, so that, so that's that component, um, for myself personally, um, I have my, you know, the Dominicans have a kind of, you know, we pray the office, um, you know, at home, we also pray it in our meeting communally. Um, we have a devotion to the rosary because the rosary is given to St. Dominic, um, and so, uh, so we do have a devotion to the rosary, uh, and I also, you know, we live out our vocation to study, whether, whether it's working on study materials that we're doing together as a fraternity or on my own. Um, so I have things, you know, um, right now I'm reading, um, uh, Dietrich von Hildebrand's, uh, Transformation in Christ. That's what we're reading as, as a chapter, as a fraternity, um, and it's taken me a while to actually like get into it. You know, it's really dumb. Um, 
you know, so I'm reading that, but I, I have other things that I, I'm also reading either, you know, church theology, theology related or church related or spiritual life related, but I also have, you know, my, my work life, you know, I might be studying something secular, but it mm-hmm. feeds into my work. Uh, and then community life for the laity, of course, always involves a component of family um, and the parish, as well as the fraternal, the, the Dominican side of it, and then apostolate. And, um, you know, we all have our individual apostolates yeah. as well, as well as what we do together. I think that that was a new term for me, apostolate. How would you, could you like sum up? What is that? What does that mean? Apostolate? I would say it's the outpouring of, so the Dominican phrase, you know, following St. Thomas, and this is St. Thomas Aquinas from the Summa is to contemplate and then to pass on the fruits of contemplation. And, uh, and so that's the Dominican understanding of it. Dominicans are a kind of half and half in terms of, they're not a contemplative order um, in the contemplative only sense, you know, they're both contemplative and apostolic and it's a, it is about a kind of half and half uh, balance. And so the apostolate is the outward evangel evangelization of, of, um, of, of the church and, you know, the church's work of evangelization and you play your part in that. We play our part in that. It's one part, you know, uh, it, you know, this is a group effort <laughs> on everybody's part. So, um, so I would, I would say that it's the apostolic life is the evangelical life is the, um, the going out and preaching the good news aspect of our life. Um, you know, we grow in God on the content, on the contemplation side. Um, we grow closer to him. We move toward union with him. And then the apostolic life is the fruit of that. I think there's probably a lot of people that think, oh, well, uh, I'm, my vocation is not the priesthood. I'm not a deacon or, um, you know, I'm just a, a lay person. Talk to me a little bit about how you feel vocation plays in your role as a Christian, as a Catholic and, and preaching the gospel. You know, that's a really great question. Um, so I'm a mother, I have six children. And um, so that's, I think, the first and foremost place where this happens. I know a lot of people say this, it's very commonplace, but it's true, right? I have a vocation to marriage. And so my husband have and I have a reciprocal evangelical mission to each other. Um, and then in the raising of our children, um, just simply... Like I said, you know, you got to take your kids to church. Like this is number one, <laughs> important, number one, like, and, and we're not really, we're not terribly, um, uh, we do- try not to be burdensome to our children in this, re- in this regard. Like, um, we pray in front of them. We don't force them to pray with us, um, in a really heavy handed ham fisted way. Um, we pray in front of them, the, my husband, um, and I, whenever we take the kids to school, we will pray a decade of the rosary on the way there. Right. So we are praying with them, but we try to make it as, um, you know, as trying to inculcate the idea of Christ's freedom in the process, in the process of this, but at the same time, like they need some formation and that's our job, you know? So, you know, so trying to find that balance, but yeah, we, we do have, um, you know, I mean, family life is, of course, this is the first and foremost pillar of society. And um, from there, 
Um, I think it's going to be individual apostolate, depending on where your authority lies, where your expertise lies, you know, where your skills lie. It just, it just depends, you know, it depends on the individual person. Um, I'm a writer, um, you know, and again, that's, that's a very Dominican kind of vocation to have, uh, a lot of Dominicans write, um, I, um, I write fiction and nonfiction, uh, my, authority doesn't extend too terribly, you know, far beyond there. I would, I would never, um, oh, how would I say this? Like, I'm not the kind of person who would go around being like, oh yes. And I'm going to give a talk on this like heady theological topic. You know, that's not my, that's not my gift. That's not my, 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 my place of expertise. My husband on the other end is a theologian. So he gets to make those, he gets to give those talks all the time. Um, but that's his area of expertise. So now, speaking of which, being an author, you've you've published a number of fiction and nonfiction pieces. What is who is Rhonda Ortiz as a writer? What is your preferred genre? So my preferred genre is writing. I always joke, you know, I don't write trash fiction, but I kind of write trash <laughs> fiction. Um, no, I'm I'm being facetious. Uh, I do write. Um, I I write popular fiction, um, but it's a little bit headier popular fiction. I have a, a a good girlfriend who jokingly called it um brain candy for smart people. Okay. And um but at the same time like I think a lot of people actually do get get a lot out of it. I just basically I try to write the very best thing I can possibly am capable of, but I'm just not a literati type. I just am I'm I'm not, <laughs> you know. Um uh, and, and that's not to disparage the people who are doing uh, literary fiction. I just, I just can't. I just have no aptitude for it. Um, but I do try to write the very best thing I can. So, um, so I, I write historical fiction. Um, I do have a, a very um, strong interest in love and marriage, in family life, um, theology of the body, um, in the, how it applies or how you can see it playing out in a fictional scenario, uh, fictional scenarios. Um, I also, I love intrigue, um, mystery genre. I love mysteries. Um, I'm a big mystery reader, um, especially classic mysteries. I think side, side note, my, when I was pregnant with my fourth, the ninth month, I it was, you know, and of course, you know, the ninth month of a pregnancy is only about 20 billion years long. And, uh, <laughs> The only way I got through it was reading, was binge reading Agatha Christie and Dorothy Sayers, okay. you know, because they were, you know, easy to read. They didn't make any demands on me and they were highly logical and I was illogical. I was, I was irrational at the time. So anyway, so <laughs> mysteries, I'm this big mystery reader. Um, and I happen to like politics and historical politics, not current politics that I could care less, but the, uh, um, the historical angle of, you know, the movement of peoples and, you know, uh, and power things. So I like, I like the intimate life. I like the intimate settings. I like the home settings, but I also, you know, love to integrate that into the kind of big picture. Um, the current, my current work in progress is the Molly Chase series. It's set in 1793 Boston. And so it's early America. It's, it's post-revolutionary war, early America. If you, if anybody out there has seen Hamilton, the musical, it's when Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson are still part of Washington's cabinet. They have not yet resigned. So anyway, um, 
So just a little, yeah, obviously you could probably know that from your history lessons too, but most people would know it better from, from the Hamilton. Hamilton. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, t- I took my kids back to um, the capital of Annapolis, or it was my middle daughter, I guess it was. Uh-huh. And uh, there was a tapestry and she recognized it because of Hamilton, the music. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I mean, it's, and the thing is, it's like, you know, that, that actually, this is, this is, you're going to have to totally edit this out. That's a to- like, he did a fantastic job summarizing a very complicated period of time, historical period in very succinctly. I mean, that, that, that takes a lot of work. Um, that's not an easy task. So I hats off, uh, <laughs> hats off to Lin-Manuel Miranda. Um, yeah. So, um, so I write in that historical period right now. Um, my next project I think is, uh, is going to be set in 19, 19, the year 1900 specifically. Um, and I won't, I won't bore our listeners with that, but, you know, so I'm bouncing around a little bit, but I do have a, I, I do love history um, quite a bit. So yeah. speaking of the Molly Chase series, uh, your first book as part of it in pieces won two awards, including the ACFW Genesis contest and was a finalist for a few other awards. Mm-hmm. Tell me about who Molly Chase is and what the series is about besides being historical fiction that takes place um, sure. in the revolutionary war period. Sure. Um, so Molly Chase, she's, um, you know, 20, 21 year old, um, woman who, um, her father, this, and the, the premise of this is, is very sad. Uh, she, we, it opens six weeks after her father has committed suicide and she finds the body. And, um, and so she's in the throes of, you know, grief and PTSD and all sorts of horrible things. And her long, her childhood friend, Josiah Robb comes home from sea in the middle of this and takes her home to be cared for by his mother. And, you know, and everything, you know, in, you know, unfolds from there. The, um, I say this, it, it, it's such a terrible, terrible premise. So like that would be a terrible thing to have happen. Um, but the book is actually very funny and, um, I really like banter. And so, um, and, <laughs> <laughs> and Josiah Robb makes this book. I love Josiah. I think he's great. Um, you know, uh, and the um, Molly herself is one of these people who has to learn how to stand on her own two feet. And very early on in the book, she realizes that this is her goal. She And she needs to stand on her own two feet. And the whole plot of the book are is the conflict with people who don't want her to stand on her own two feet and 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 so you have um it's a society drama and there's also a love drama and so the rival you know comes in and you know and the rob family you know mrs rob josiah and josiah's sister are trying to facilitate this you know work mrs rob says work is curative this is a very like New England thing to say, you know, she's, she's old Puritan stock, you know, like work is curative. Like this gives you a sense of purpose. This will provide a foundation or at least a, you know, a framework on a daily basis. And and Molly, who was raised with money, you know, and I think this is in the sense of like, she doesn't, she wants to be useful for the first time in her life. She really does want to in fact be useful and that this is going to be a stepping stone for her. Um, toward you know personal healing toward you know forgiving her father things like this um and and toward being a fully fledged human being 
So, so that's where she is at. And again, you know, everybody, the, the, the outside forces and the antagonistic forces are all trying to kind of squash her back down in various forms, you know, so some of it's gossip. Uh, some of it is, you know, um, you know, a rival who is a manipulative bully, um, and also very wealthy. And so this kind of idea of like, you know, what she is trying to do with her life. So she's a very good seamstress. Um, she just happens to be very talented with a needle. And so, you know, she's trying to be productive and, 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 and practice a beautiful craft and all we can, you know, the, the external forces, all they can see is that this is, this is low class. Um, I layer this with, so that's a very kind of intimate kind of, these are, these are plot points that perhaps don't have, don't sound like they have a lot of drama to them. They, they do. Um, but I layer the whole book with this kind of grand ex like, overarching political plot um and josiah josiah has two problems he has a woman problem molly is very close to him they have a very close relationship but it's very fraternal and he's helping her and so he doesn't know how to get underneath that when all the external circumstances have basically locked him into you can't she's she's sick and you're taking care of her and you can't like you can't take advantage of that um, and, and she thinks that he's he, he, to, for him to, to court her would be a kind of violation of, of this, even in her mind, you know, like the idea that any, anybody would dare suggest that he would be doing this, you know, taking a woman home into his own house, you know, not married, uh, that she's, she just gets up in arms, you know, she's ready to defend him and defend his honor. And he's like, ah, <laughs> excuse me, <laughs> don't defend my honor quite so much, you know, like, <laughs> I, I like you. Uh, I am allowed to like you. Uh, but he doesn't know how to get around that. So he has a woman problem, but he also has a job problem in that he is a sailor. And being a merchant sailor, uh, he's, he's a, he's a first, he's a officer on his, on a merchant ship. And he, he's away from home. And, and now he's, he's stuck with this problem where he's like, he has people in need who need him at home, not just the money, but they need him present to be friends, to be, you know, a companion. And, um, and anyway, he's asked to carry a letter, a secret letter to George Washington. And so I end up throwing him into a number of like seven, specifically 1793 political crisis, um, namely the Genet affair. And so he, he's down in Charleston when Genet arrives, you know, and, and I drop him into the middle of basically the, the French and, and English French revolutionary wars have started. And that's a, that's a naval, those are naval battles. That's a, that's a war fought on the sea. And, um, and I drop him into the middle of the American piece of that. And so, you know, so there's this great external plot that I find very interesting. I think that, um, you know, people who are not into the the kind of more domestic plot would impress, would appreciate the, the, the kind of bigger external plot. So that's a very long-winded response <laughs> to this. I could talk forever. And anyway, I don't want to try everybody's patience. <laughs> <laughs> Well, how many books do you think will will make up this series? Um, well, I'm hoping I can land the plane in three. Um, it's possible it may be four. 
um, when I first conceived of this book, it was as one book. And then I started writing it and I got to the midpoint and realized that I was writing War and Peace. I think I had, I don't remember how many, you know, I was well into the at least 150,000 words at that point. And I was like, or, you know, and it only reached the midpoint. And that's a huge book. That's a really, really big book. And so I, I had emailed our mutual friend, Rosanna White. And I'm like, I've got this problem. <laughs> <laughs> she's and she's like you're writing a series uh it's like oh oh i'm writing a series not just a single book oh okay readjust my thinking on this um the first book in pieces is the courtship component of it um part of uh what makes it a series and not just a single book is that is that typically in the romance genre if you have a love story Typically, if there are any other problems, if the character is facing any other issue, those get tied up nice and succinctly with the conclusion of the courtship, right? So in this case, Molly is suffering from her father's suicide. That is not a problem that can be reduced to a single courtship or period of courtship. That is a lifelong problem. Mm. And so what had happened was in the process of writing this, I, 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 I concluded, I reached the, the culmination of the, of the courtship. We got to the proposal. It's a great scene. It's a lovely scene. They're very funny together. Um, we got to the proposal scene, but her problem with her father exists still, still was not re- resolved, which makes sense, as I said. So, um, so I realized that, that I write I write love stories, but this love story was one that was a bigger love story. This love story was the love story of God and this girl and this young woman. This is their love story. And not just in a figurative sense, but in a literal sense, the Lord is wooing her and we are going to go all the way to the end. We're going to go, we're going to arc all the way to the end. That's It's a bit of a spoiler, but I've talked about it elsewhere. So I've just tell you that is that. There, there are, there is a genre, like a, I would say like a, a subgenre of books about with women protagonists that kind of span like an epic tale of birth to death. Um, I think probably um, in Catholic circles, um, probably the most well-known, it's a little bit niche, but probably the most well-known of this is Sigrid Unstead's Kristen Lavin's Daughter. Um, uh, Sigrid Unstead won uh, the Nobel Prize in Literature back in the 30s, I believe. Um, and she also happened to be a late Dominican. Oh, wow. So yeah, she was a she was a third order Dominican. So um uh so it's it seems to be in the blood, or at least in the charism, to write really large stories. <laughs> um so anyway, so yeah, so we are so this is a this is a grand love story, um, but not just not just between man and woman, but um that marriage that the marriage story is part and playing into the, the, the love story that God has with us. Um, and then just trying to show this with one particular woman. And so that's, that's the hope. That's the grand plan, whether or not I achieve that is, is, uh, is another piece altogether. When uh, do you expect the second book to come out? So I just turned um, the, I just turned the manuscript in that book is 
in the grand tradition of middle books, uh, that that book happens to be my problem middle child. <laughs> it's the middle slog. <laughs> uh, and I have fought and fought and fought and fought that book. Um, but it finally came together this last, um, I, I was given a deadline for another rewrite. And it finally came together in part because when, you know, again, I had conceived of this book as a very long, a very long book originally. Um, we ended up cutting off the first chunk. I submitted that. It got revised. And in the process of revision, a lot of the old material no longer was no longer applicable. And I was clinging to some of it. And so anyway, I, this time around, I was like, there's a phrase in fiction writing called kill the darlings. Have you heard of this? Yes, I have. Yeah. So kill the darlings. And like, literally my, my computer was probably dripping with figurative <laughs> blood. You know, <laughs> I was like, kill the darling, kill the darling. And it finally, the story finally came together. So, uh, so that um, we are fast tracking that a little bit. So the hope, hopefully July of 2023, um, I will see if that happens. Um, a lot, a lot of that is dependent on my editor deciding how much more work it needs. And um, so we'll see what she says. I'm still waiting for those edits to come back. I'm not nervous at all. (laughs) Well, in addition to writing um, fiction, you are are also, you've written a number of nonfiction pieces. You you also have, um, you also have scripture for the scrupulous. Tell me a little Mm -hmm. bit about that. So scripture for the scrupulous is a, was a, um, a response to, um, my own journey with scrupulosity. And just as a definition, um, scrupulosity is, um, when you talk about scruples in a religious sense, it's when you don't have peace or you're constantly experiencing doubt around, um, religious or moral actions or a state of being. And so it's, so you obsess over it and then you're trying to kind of, it's obsessive compulsive behavior and you're trying to basically fix your problem by, oh, I'm going to pray another rosary. I'm going to do another novena. I'm going to, you know, I didn't do that rosary right. I need to pray it again, you know, and it's, and it's absolutely, um, it's, 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 it's a, it's a very painful way to go about one's faith because you have faith. And you're trying to please God and you're trying, you know, and at the same time, it's like, there's no sense of freedom or there's, there's a lack of sense of, of that freedom around it. Um, as, as um, a pathology or as like a clinical diagnosis, it can be full-fledged obsessive compulsive disorder with scrupulosity. That's, that's a, that is something that people get diagnosed with. Um, it can also be a manifestation of generalized anxiety um, it can also be temporary, right? what are called general scruples. Um, people can go through phases of that in their faith life where, you know, you know, you just, you don't feel like you have freedom around the practice of your faith or around your relationship with God. And so you're, you're constantly trying to fix it with um, more and more and more religious practice, Um you know, uh, so it was, this came out of my own, um, experience with this, um, St. Alphonsus Liguori, uh, uh, had, is kind of the, the quintessential, um, or the, the key person to 
read, the doctor of the church to read on scrupulosity because he himself had scruples, um, terrible, terrible scruples. The other saint is St. Ignatius of Loyola, also experienced scrupulosity. And so both of these men um, and these saints have a lot to say about scrupulosity. But one thing that St. Alphonsus Liguori says is that fundamental to the to the um, the approach to dealing with scruples is to cultivate a relationship of trust and deep relationship of understanding God's love for you. So, so there's a a facilitating trust in God that God's promises um, trump whatever's going on in your head. (laughs) So, um, and that God loves you no matter what's going on in your head. And that, um, and that particularly um, has to um, some of a lot of this has to be um, in a relationship of obedience to a spiritual director, which interestingly enough actually coincides with um, just best practices for dealing with um, obsessive compulsive disorder um, that you uh, have to trying to to not do the compulsive behaviors out of obedience to the therapist or out of obedience to the doctor. Um, so, so interestingly enough on the religious side, um, it also works with um, spiritual direction. I'm rambling a little bit. Let me bring it back to scripture for the scrupulous. So for scripture for the scrupulous is I'm not an expert. I am somebody on the journey. And so, um, but I'm also Dominican and you know, and that comes with a sort of preaching component and, and a study component. And so what I do is I create guided meditations that go out once a month and they are centered on the inculcation of trust and love of God, the knowledge of the love of God. And that is all they are, is they are guided meditations on those themes, which sounds so generic, but when it's it's pitched in the context of scrupulosity, it has a, it's a very specific audience that needs to hear to needs to say, okay, in my spiritual life, I need practices that help this. Now, this is not the full, I, you know, I'm just offering an aid that's once a month. It's not even more than that. So, um, and actually right now it's in hiatus because I just had a baby recently. So, um, could hopefully bring it back soon. <laughs> <laughs> Now, and in addition, you also have a novena for writers as well. Yeah, I do. Um, And that um, I I modeled a little bit on this, the same model as the scripture for the scrupulous meditation, but I actually less of, there's less of me and more of just the structure of it. But basically I love novenas. Um, This is a very good form of prayer for me. I'm like nine days, going to say intention, you know, Um, and so it's a nine day prayer. Um, and it's based in scripture. I wrote it to be um, ecumenical. Um, you know, um, I didn't put a whole lot of, you know, theological ex- like exposition or I didn't do any interpretation on top of that exegesis. That's the word I wanted um, on top of that. Um, it's mostly just um, contemplating scriptures that I thought spoke to different aspects of the writing life. Um, so, you know, for example, um, Christ is the word, right? Kind of the fundamental to things like uh, one of the meditations is on Moses and Moses gets his mission and he's saying, no, 
because he's not a well-spoken man. And so, you know, you know, kind of connecting that as like, okay, now we're going to meditate on this in a general sense. And now let's just look at it specifically to the writing life where, um, you know, the idea of, of um, fear with regards words, you know, and that that's a very specific connection, right? Um, I'm not a well-spoken person. Well, just, I'm not a well-written person or I have doubts about my writing vocation. Uh, you know, that, like I said, actually, you can even hear it when you're interviewing me. I'm like, oh, you know, I write trash fiction. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, I don't write trash fiction, but there's a piece of me that's like, oh, you know, (laughs) it's not heady. Um, and, and, um, you know, and that there's a sense of always, I think with writers and especially because writers work in their head and they work in silence and it's a very, um, uh, solitary pursuit, largely, um, there's a tendency to run into a lot of doubt. I know a lot of writers who have a devotion to their guardian angel just for this reason, you know, because it's a, it's, there's a, there's a really like heavy, the, 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 the life of the imagination and, and the creative life tend to come with a lot of spiritual warfare aspects, you know, it just invites it. So, Anyway, that's a tangent. Another another topic for another day. <laughs> another topic for another day. I hear you though. Like uh, I I'm I process through writing. I've always processed through writing. And my wife is like, "Well, you didn't tell me about this." And I was like, "I know. I swear I did." But it's yeah. all in my head, right? It's all right, I wrote right. about it or I thought about it or something, but yeah. I did not communicate that verbally. <laughs> yeah. Was now? Do you write nonfiction? Or do you write fiction? Uh, mostly nonfiction. I okay. am working on some fiction, uh, and but it's it's hard for me. Like it's it's a oh, hard job. Hard. Yeah. Fiction is just different. Yeah. I think this is the this is the thing. When I started writing fiction, I had written nonfiction before. But when I write, when I started writing fiction, I had um, the good grace to recognize that I didn't know what I was doing, um, which is a really great way to start out. Um, and I'm really grateful that you know to God for making sure I knew that I like that the fact that I realized that right off the get-go um I had emailed our mutual friend Rosanna White like Rosanna I have this idea for a story I've never written a story before and people talking in my head this is am I crazy she's like welcome (laughs) like I don't know what I'm doing can you please help and you know and and went, went from there so um yeah, I get that. Yeah. Nonfiction and fiction are completely different modes. And I actually, I'm out of practice with nonfiction to a certain degree. I, I recently had to write something, um, oh gosh, for Catholic World Report. It was something really short. And I was like, I this is going really slow. Why is this going so slowly? Um, and my husband's looking at me like, why are you taking so much time on this? It's not, you know, <laughs> like I've forgotten how to do this. Yeah, really different. And, you know, and every time I see Rosanna say like, oh, I went on, you know, today I I wrote, I don't know, 50,000 words or whatever it is. Whatever she does. Yeah, she's she's amazing. (laughs) I was like, I, I, I I write a couple sentences and then I'm like, I'm stuck. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I, I, yeah, I get maybe a quarter, maybe a quarter on a good day of what she gets, but, um, but she, she, she just has more you know, more practice at it than I do. She has a whole decade start on me. So, or if not more, so it's, um, but she is pretty amazing. 
Well, where can people find this novena and sign up for the scripture for the scrupulous and find you in general? Okay. So um, my website is my name, rondaortiz.com. And that's Rhonda with an H, R H O N D. <laughs> can I spell my own name? <laughs> Ortiz, O-R-T-I-Z, um, com, And all of that is there. Um, links to um, book and to various nonfiction that I've done. And also the novena and scripture for the scrupulous, which I really do hope I can get back in gear soon. Um, and I'll post and, links in the show notes to that as okay. well. That's good because uh, my my spelling my name this morning. I was telling Justin, <laughs> so this is for listeners. I was telling Justin ahead of uh, starting that um, my eight month old was up. He's been up all night for several days running, and I'm you know sucking down coffee over here. So <laughs> spelling is 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 beyond my ken right at the moment. <laughs> no, there's no spell checker. <laughs> <laughs> There's no spell check for, for a weary mother. Um, yeah. Well, in addition to being a weary mother, having six <laughs> children, uh, having a husband as a theology professor uh, and writing, you are also a co-founder of Chrism Press. Tell me a little bit about Chrism Press, why you started it and what's its niche. Okay. So Chrism Press is a, is, is a part of is a division of Whitefire Publishing. So our friends that we have mentioned, our mutual friends, um, David and Rosanna White, have owned a small publishing house that is gradually getting larger and larger. Um, since right after we graduated from college, David started this. I'm trying to remember when he started it. Maybe 2006. It has yeah. been a long time. This has been their their side project for many, many years. And... Um, uh, so anyway, so in 2020, which is the worst year to start anything, <laughs> uh, we, I was, so I was pitching my book and I was pitching in pieces around, I was, I was shopping it around in 2019. Um, and the whites had offered me, they said, oh, if you want to send a proposal our way, we'll look at it. And I really hemmed and hawed because we're friends and working with friends can ruin friendships, you know? And I didn't, I didn't want to do that. Um, and eventually worked through that um, with the help of some advice elsewhere and um, submitted to them, went through the acquisition process. In the process of the acquisition process, I happened to mention to David, I said, I have this friend, Karen Yulo. Uh, she's a novelist. Um, we worked together on Dapple Things, um, Catholic literary magazine, um, Dapple Things. And I said, Karen and I have equal like we have a shared um criticism of just the catholic publishing landscape and with regard with regards fiction and we feel like there's this gaping hole for fiction that isn't literary isn't literary um there's not a lot of places to publish you know something like my book which is historical you know romance or historical romance suspense like there's just no place for something like that um there's no really good places for you know, something like a fan, the fantasy novel or something like that, you know, so there were, there's certain genre places that were missing. I happened to express this and I said, and so Karen and I have this crazy dream someday when the kids are all grown, we're going to start a publishing house. David and Rosanna flipped around with, Hey, we should start an imprint because they in fact own a publishing house already. So why not, why are we reinventing the wheel? And so 
so anyway, so the long story, very long story short, I am such a rambler this morning. This is the <laughs> lack of co- this is the coffee issue. Um, coffee and lack of sleep. Right? Coffee and lack of sleep um, is uh, long story short. They decided to start Chris and Press. Um, we decided at the time, David and Rosanna were not Catholic. And because we were feeling all ecumenical about this, we decided let's open it up to the Orthodox too. So we, we opened it and it's just a place for Catholic and Orthodox fiction voices. And um, Whitefire largely publishes, they don't do a lot of literary fiction. We do some. Uh, so Maya Sinha is the city mother, Kate Park. Kate Park King- yeah. Yeah. It's very city good. Mother. It's a great book. Uh, and then Kay Park Hinckley's um, Shooting at Heaven's Gate. So that's on the more literati end. Uh, Daniel McInerney's The Good Death of Kate Montclair is coming out soon. Um, actually, and just side note, Daniel McInerney, his father, Ralph McInerney, was um, very well known in Catholic circles when he was alive. Late, late, late Ralph McInerney um, wrote The Father Dowling Mysteries. Um, he was a Thomist. He was a theologian. Um, or philosopher, excuse me, but he was, he also was a, was a, he wrote mysteries and you could, I can find them in my library. I mean, you know, my local library. Um, so anyway, so we, that, that, that bug apparently was inherited. Um, and we have his son's, uh, we have his son's book coming out soon. Um, but we also have a mind to the, you know, the, the people in the pews, um, you know, we don't write, it's, it's not so high as to be inaccessible but it is very um intelligent if that makes any sense so yeah so that's what we focus on um i think it fits with it fits with the whites as well as much as it fits with karen and i (laughs) and then we have another um so in terms of editors there's one white fire editor marisa stokely who um joined us as the founding editorial team um and she's catholic as well so um, yeah, so that was how that started. That was 2020. Um, in the process of that, they did accept my book. I am grateful um, <laughs> that they did do that. Um, and that was a really interesting process too. Again, going through um, acquisition with friends um, is actually really nerve wracking because they're not going to say yes to a book that they can't sell um, that isn't up to snuff. They, and and they, they, they're not, they're not going to say yes. Um um, and I it ended up going through a revise and resubmit um, uh, under David's direction mm-hmm. and um, was much better for it. He basically told me it needed more plot. And I, as I always joke, like, if you really want a, your historical romance to improve, um, have a man read it. It's totally sexist. <laughs> it is totally true. <laughs> um, anyway. That was anyway, so they did accept it. So, um, uh, yeah, we started out with Eleanor um, Borg Nicholson's Brother Wolf, then my book, um, then The City Mother, and um, and went from there. Uh, so, um, yeah, so we've had, um, gosh, I'm trying to think how many books we have out um, so far. Right now we have four in the works, um, three hopefully releasing this year. Um, yeah, so, you know, so for a small press, you know, we're trying to to find um, the Catholic and Orthodox writers who are writing today and trying to just create a home that's friendly to the expression of faith, um, but not overtly pious and like overly pious and kind of, and again, ham-fisted. I like, I like the word ham-fisted. Pious in a ham-fisted way. We're trying to just create that space for them. Well, I know, um, you know, being a writer today, there's 
tons of publishers out there. There's, uh, you know, lots of different avenues to go. And I think it's probably overwhelming for a lot of writers, but when, when you're considering submissions, what are some of the things that, that you're looking for? What, what advice would you give um, uh, a, a Catholic or Orthodox fiction writer looking to submit to Chrism Press? Right. Yeah. So Chrism is open to a wide variety of genres. I think it, at this point, um, if it's the, the most important thing that makes or breaks. So first of all, the writing needs to be ready. You know, sometimes the book isn't ready. Sometimes it needs to go through another round or two of revisions before it comes to us. Um, so you you don't necessarily know that if you don't run it by other people. <laughs> so so definitely, in, you know, cultivating, a um, making sure that the writing is ready. Um, so that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is, is the professional ins and outs of publishing. Even in a small press, I mean, we're, we're, we're rather forgiving on that end, but, you know, knowing that people have done their homework, because at this point for us, you're the, the writer. So this has to be a good fit. You know, the, the author has to like the way we edit and what we're proposing as potential edits. Um, and we, we will do that ahead of, ahead of acquisition. Sometimes we'll say like, okay, this is what we're thinking just to get just broadly. This is where we're headed with this manuscript. We're interested in it. This is what we're thinking. Is that amenable to you? So the professional side is actually really, really important. So again, you know, we have to be able to work with people in a professional sense. And the thing with writing is that it's very, very, it's very personal. And people have really, especially fiction writing, it hurts to be edited because it's your imagination on the page. And so it requires a huge amount of virtue and professionalism that you have to be able to take, um, you have to be able to take criticism and to apply it. And that, that, and so it requires detachment. And, and so one of the things that we can tell when we go through the acquisition process is if somebody is at a, at the stage of ready for that, with their writing, they're, they want that, they're ready with it. They know that in order for this to be the best story, they want this to be the best story that possibly can be, they're ready for editing. They're ready to, to take that criticism and to go through that whole process um, is having the professional, um, the professionalism on the acquisition side or the submissions process. So like how they, how they conduct, how, how they do their proposal. Did they do their homework? You know, I mean, literally like, okay, the proposal has certain components, you know, we need to know information. Did they do their homework? Do they know how to write a proposal? Um, you know, uh, and so those are, that's kind of just like a straight up, just straight litmus test. You know, do they, can they, can you follow directions? Can you look at the submissions page and follow directions, you know? Um, and are you going to, you know, and so those are, those are things that, um, it it's, has nothing to do with the writing, except that it has everything to do with the writing. And those are places, I think for, for writers, that is the, like the, the process of being edited is the place where um, it's the place where it's, there's a lot of suffering um, and it's, there's a lot of growth. And it sounds like, I think for people who are not writers, they'd be like, well, just take the, take the advice and just do it. And you're like, yeah, but if you're a writer, it's, this is like, a, this is the place where you get, this is a crucifixion. 
<laughs> and, and it can be. And um, and so having to practice the life of virtue through that. Um, and then also being and having faith. You know, editors are um, your cheerleaders. They take books that they like. You know, they take books that they like. And now they're going to tell you how to fix it. But they take books that they like. They want these to succeed. You know, they want this particular book, this particular project to succeed. And so, yeah, so I think in terms of just people who are coming to us, I think the, you know, for us, we are open to a wide variety of things. Um, if so long as there's something about it, and this is very highly subjective, there's something about it, like we have the right person who has the right interest, who has, you know, who's ready to take this on and for some reason intrigues us in some fashion. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of subjectivity uh, on the part of the editor, um, on the editorial board as a whole. Um, and then there's some practical things. Can we sell it? Um, is this a person we can work with? Uh, you know, that sort of thing. So. Great. Yeah. Well, I just have a couple more questions. Okay. Um, one is uh, this podcast is called why Catholic. So mm -hmm. if, you, if someone to say, Rhonda, why are you Catholic or why should I be Catholic? How would you answer that question? You know, I was thinking about if you were going to ask that question, I was thinking about the answer to this. My faith is so important to me. Um, I really honestly couldn't imagine going back to what it was before, in part because there's just so much richness and so much beauty and so much depth that I have discovered as a Catholic. Um, I wanted more. You know, I wanted more from my faith um, and I wanted God, you know, I want God. And I think this, the desire, everything in the sacramental life, um, in our knowledge, our bank of knowledge is everything that we've accumulated, everything in our works of mercy, everything that, you know, that the Catholic life and the church offers both in its profundity and its simplicity on all levels you know, is aimed at shepherding her children to union with God. This is, um, you know, the divine life to, sh to share in the divine life. And I think I just wanted more. I didn't want to be in a position of juxtaposition from this, you know, like I want, I want to be in union with my brothers and sisters all going in this direction. So, um, and it's just, I, I couldn't imagine anything else at this point, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Um, last question is, sure. who, who is your confirmation saint and why did you choose that person? Mary of Egypt. She's a penitent. Yeah. She was a desert mother um, and a penitent. And um, as I mentioned, you know, earlier in the interview, um, I definitely went through a prodigal daughter stage and Mary of Egypt went through a prodigal daughter stage of of a horrific, and if you find her story, um, uh, St. Sophronius wrote the story of St. Mary of Egypt meeting St. Zosimus. So there's the, you know, it's definitely an Eastern, an Eastern tale, um, but it's worth finding. Uh, someday I would like to write a fictionalized version of St. Mary of Egypt's life. Um, I don't know how that would look quite yet because the third, fourth century is not my historical area of expertise or interest, although I'm married to a patristic scholar who actually is interested in that time period. So, I mean, I have a resource, um, <laughs> but, um, 
but I, I've never, I've never written in it. I don't know hardly anything about it except what, you know, we talk about over the dinner table. Um, but in any case, yeah, um, Sunday would very much like to write her story as well, but she is my confirmation saint and um, she's, she's a very beautiful one. It was so good to catch up with Rhonda. It's been years and it's so awesome to see not only how Rhonda is excelling. It was so good to catch up with Rhonda. It's been years and it's so awesome to see not only how Rhonda is excelling as a writer, but also in assisting other writers as well. And of course, all while doing that as a wife and a mother. I've included some links in the show notes. One is to her website, RondaOrtiz.com, where you can find her book as well as other things she has written. I've also linked to her husband, Jared's interview on the Coming Home Network. Just a reminder, please subscribe to the Why Catholic Podcast on your platform of choice. You can also join the Why Catholic community. It's free, but if you're feeling gen- but if you're feeling generous, there's also a place to give. Your donation keeps this podcast going and also goes to support various Catholic ministries. To get started, go to whycatholic.substack.com slash subscribe. Thanks again to Rhonda and to you for joining me. Until next time, God bless you. My name is Justin Hibbert, and this is Why Catholic.